Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. After about 10 minutes, I started feeling uh, like that my whiskers were growing, my teeth were, were getting long and sharp, my mouth tasted of blood. I started eyeing the chickens that were clucking around and, and decided not to attack them. I started feeling like a, a feline, like a, a, I was, as if I was turning into a big jungle cat. The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I welcome anthropologist and best-selling author, Jeremy Narby. Jeremy became an early pioneer of ayahuasca research while living with the Ashaninka people of the Peruvian Amazon in the 1980s. He currently works as Amazonian Projects Director for Nouvelle Planète, a nonprofit organization that promotes the economic and cultural empowerment of indigenous peoples. Jeremy is perhaps best known as the author of The Cosmic Serpent, which was published in English back in 1999. His new book, which he authored with Shawi indigenous elder Rafael Chanchari Pesuri, presents a cross-cultural dialogue that explores the similarities between ayahuasca and tobacco, the role these plants play in indigenous cultures, and the hidden truths they reveal about nature. I've been a fan of Jeremy's work since reading The Cosmic Serpent a number of years ago, so it was a real pleasure to speak with him about the two plant medicines that have been most integral to my own healing journey. We discussed the scientific and shamanic views of these two important plant teachers and begin to imagine a Western animism that could help restore our kinship with the more-than-human world. If you'd like to join the conversation and help support the podcast, please consider becoming a member of the growing Medicine Path tribe at patreon.com forward slash medicinepath. 
You can also follow me on Instagram at Revealing the Soul. I love hearing from listeners, so please feel free to reach out on social media or email me at hello at brianjames.ca. Okay, that's all for now. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with anthropologist and author Jeremy Narby on The Medicine Path. I'm here with Jeremy Narby. Uh, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, Brian. I've been following your work for many years now. Um, I remember reading Cosmic Serpent when it came out, and uh, I think it blew a lot of people's minds, but I love the ideas and concepts that you put forward in that book. And uh, it's been really fun to follow your work over the years. Thanks. And yeah. You've got this new book, and I'm, I'm actually really happy that you put it out. So it's called Plant Teachers, Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge. And um, I, one of the things I appreciate about it is that it's a little book. Um, I don't know who, who decided that all books had to be 200, 250 pages or more in order to be taken seriously, but I appreciate a small, concise, and clearly written book. And um, I think this fills a niche, actually, in that it provides, um, I, I could see it as being used as a kind of reference for ayahuasca and tobacco, because you cover both uh, indigenous views of these plant medicines and the scientific views. And it feels quite comprehensive to me. So off the bat, I just want to say thanks for writing the book. Okay. Well, you know, I can say two things uh, about that. The first is that so I, I had the, the idea of doing this short kind of capsule-like book uh, with what you need to know about the two plants. Um, and then uh, when uh, I ran it by the different publishers or potential publishers, they all said, it's, it's, it's so short, it's too short. Uh, how can we beef it up? I mean, they're, they're looking to sell paper and, you know, nobody's... Uh, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not blaming, but I'm just saying that the, the format of the publishing industry, it's, it's hard to get a, a publisher behind a, a kind of a short book like that. Um, so I was happy to find the uh, uh, rare bird with the um, New World uh, Library. Then the other thing is that I sent it to a, a kind of a, actually, he, he was the original publisher of The Cosmic Serpent in French in 1995, Henry mm -hmm. Weizenbach in Geneva. He's now retired and living up in the mountains. So he's kind of like a, a wise old man. And he read it. And then he said, um, oh, it's, it's a vade mecum. I said, what? <laughs> um, it, in, in Latin, it means um, a, take it with me. Um, it's going to come with me. Or a, a take with. It's, in other words, a small book you, you, have, you can take with you. And you're going to return to it for, for references uh, regularly. And the, um, it turns out that in Latin, they already had a kind of a name for this, a sort of a, a small, concise book that tells you what you need to know um, about a given subject. 
So, um, yeah. yep, it's it's a vade mecum. Vade mecum, yeah, also known as a pocketbook or kind of chapbook. Yeah, yeah. but but yeah. The, uh, not not just that you can put it in your pocket, but that you're probably, if you really are interested in the two plants, you're probably going to want to return to it regularly because it has information on all, all kinds of different uh, aspects of the plant. And, you know, so it, it's a quick source to uh, reference that way. Yeah, no, certainly. And uh, you really cover all the bases there. And it um, it clarifies a lot of what I think are misconceptions about these two plants. Um and I want to get there, but kind of initially, what uh, inspired you to write this book at this time? I mean, you've written about ayahuasca before, but mm -hmm. uh, why why tobacco and why talk about these two plants together? Well, um, um, as somebody who I've been working for the last 31 years as a a fundraiser for indigenous Amazonian initiatives like land titling or bilingual education programs or fish farms or legal training or all kinds of uh, different aspects of the lives of indigenous Amazonian people so that they and their rainforest can uh, survive. Um, so it, it always has been about um, uh, when it when I write books or give talks. Um, making their point of view understandable or heard or, or uh, like that. And it's true that there's a lot of people talking about ayahuasca. There's a lot of people talking about Amazonian shamanism. And um, uh, the Amazonian point of view on that particular question, on like the ayahuasca shamanism, uh, is that Ayahuasca and tobacco go together. They're inseparable. Um, they are both master plants, teacher plants, and they're both very powerful. Uh, they're both medicinal. And there's actually a, a drawing of the cosmovision of the Shipibo people where you see their view of the, the world and the cosmos. And in, instead of north, east, west, south, which are like these two arrows that, that, that cross over, you have tobacco, ayahuasca, jaguar, anaconda. Hmm. And so the two plants are tobacco and ayahuasca, and the two animals are jaguar and anaconda. And those are the four cardinal points of the Shipibo cosmovision, according to this one particular representation of it. Um, it goes to show how, how central and fundamental um, ayahuasca and tobacco are. Now, in the western world or northern world or industrial world whatever you want to call it the friends of ayahuasca are often soft peddling the tobacco part tobacco has bad press tobacco is like a controversial uh plant and um you know people confuse it with cigarettes and the harm that uh, industrial cigarettes do and so um I thought that it, it, the the idea of find, wanting to talk about tobacco, you know, I can tell you, if you liked the cosmic serpent, um, uh, you may have noticed that tobacco is mentioned as often in the cosmic serpent as ayahuasca is. Um, and when I wrote that book initially, I did not think that I had written an ayahuasca book. I thought it, I'd written a book about the shamanism of indigenous Amazonian people. It also discussed ayahuasca, but it discussed uh, tobacco just as much. Um, 
Well, um, that's the whole thing is that uh, Westerners have had an e relatively and actually a surprisingly easy time getting into ayahuasca. Even that was a surprise to me because in 1995, if you told me that it would become a, a fad for Western people to drink this uh, powerful and vomitive uh, hallucinogenic plant mixture, um, I would have said, you know, probably not. They like kind of pills that don't taste of anything. Mm. But that, that was, in fact, turned out to be completely wrong. Ayahuasca has become a, a fashionable almost. Um, and at the same time, tobacco continues to be viewed as this bad thing that you want to avoid and that is part of the tobacco industry or, or something like that. So yeah. the, the idea of um, right at the heart of indigenous Amazonian knowledge, you have these two plants. Tobacco is actually the number one shamanic plant. I mean, if we have to do a, a, a ranking, um, tobacco is ahead of ayahuasca in terms of how widely it's used and how commonly it's used. And it's, it's always used with ayahuasca, whereas ayahuasca is not always used with tobacco. In other words, if you, if, if you use tobacco, you can use it on your own. But if you're using ayahuasca, almost invariably, the practitioners will use tobacco. Um, and, and so the idea of um, writing uh, about tobacco uh, uh, in terms of making the indigenous Amazonian point of view understandable to an international audience, that was the, the first kind of experimental idea. And I thought, what better way to do that than to go and speak with an Amazonian expert who, who knows the subject. And after interviewing Rafael Chanchari, who was a, a Shawi elder that I, I've known for 20 years, actually, I thought his, his answers were so good that it was, it was a chapter on its own. Mm -hmm. And it really did encapsulate the, uh, the indigenous view on the subject. And then when I went and, and checked his answers about what he said tobacco could do, what he said it could heal and so on, and looked into recent science about it, and actually, the last time I looked into the science of uh, tobacco was when I was writing The Cosmic Serpent, 1994, 1995. So 25 years later, um, I went back into it and I was surprised to find uh, how much contemporary science corresponds to what indigenous Amazonian experts say about the plant. Um, and so at that point, I thought, well, this is, this is interesting. After one chapter where you get the indigenous view on the plant, you get another chapter where you get the scientific view of the plant, and you read both, and you get a sort of a, a broad range of knowledge about the plant where you're not told what to think. You can actually choose what you think is the most pertinent way of looking at it. In fact, these are two different angles. I think that they're complementary angles. But, you know, so some people can say, oh, I only subscribe to the indigenous view and all that talk about scientific molecules um, uh, makes my eyes glaze over. Well, that's OK. Or vice versa. I mean, some some sort of hard boiled rationalist might not like the indigenous chapters, um, but uh, will appreciate the clarity of the molecular chapters. Um, so there is a sort of a, a almost a complete range of mm -hmm. uh, ways of looking at the plant. And then I thought, well, this is uh, interesting. Instead of making it like, I don't know, a, a short article or, or something, 
we could actually repeat the procedure with ayahuasca, see what the same expert who knows tobacco, who knows ayahuasca, who works with them as a, a healer. Um, so let's do it again. And, and uh, I interviewed him on ayahuasca, including on difficult questions. And, um, and then I looked into the recent science of ayahuasca. And once again, actually, the science of ayahuasca since the year 2000 has exploded. There, there was no science, really, of ayahuasca in 1995, or, or very little. Um, and so there's been uh, enormous progress of the scientific understanding of ayahuasca. And at the same time, uh, it's such a young science that it also has limits. It also has things that it, uh, you know, it tends to reduce ayahuasca to DMT, for example. Um, Whereas that is um, uh, almost like an obvious mistake if you take ayahuasca seriously, simply because there are many forms of ayahuasca that do not contain DMT and that are active, you know, I mean, that's that's easy enough. yeah, but I, I want to get to that. The, the, the idea I'll just finish is that re- repeating the juxtaposition so you get the indigenous view of ayahuasca, then the, uh, the synthesis of the current scientific understanding where you see the limits of science. And, and then there you have it. You, you, it's at your, that's the vade mecum. That's what you can take with you in your pocket. It's, um, this is what's known uh, more or less and in summary um, about the plant at the moment from two different angles, two different systems of knowledge, indigenous and scientific. And, um, and then there it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's available to you, and then you can figure it out. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. And I, I, the book feels very much like a dialogue between the North and the South and between you and your friend Rafael, between science and the Amazonian or indigenous perspective. Um, and I think that's really important to have that dialogue. Uh, there's a lot that those points of view can learn from each other, I think. And um, I think that was something that I really liked about Cosmic Serpent is because it felt like that's kind of what you had done. And in doing that, create a kind of new mythology about ayahuasca, you know, that the, the serpent in all of the um, cosmology and the imagery around Amazonian shamanism could actually be a representation of the DNA strand. And I think that's really what blew people's minds. It was one of those like, you know, uh, from without to within, from the macro to the micro and just, wow. You know, I don't know if anyone had put those two things together before. So this book is in that in that kind of theme, but also you don't, um, you don't do that bringing together and you kind of leave the dialogues as they are. And like you said, let the reader make their own conclusions or develop their own mythology. Well, you know, the, uh, the cosmic serpent, um, uh, so was published in French 26 years ago and in English, uh, 23 years ago. Um, it, it was meant as, um, uh, uh, like a, a, an activist's book to kind of make people think. So, you know, what if these two forms? And so it, the, there was a kind of a deliberate fireworks uh, aspect to it. Um, here, and so there's a time for that. And I, I'm really happy w- with the, that book and what it did and, and so forth. But I also think there's a time for... Um, 
this particular uh, small book focused on two plants um, is more like an exercise book to the cosmic serpent. In other words, let's we don't even need to think about any kind of complicated metaphysics or molecules or, or, or mythological representations or anything. Let's just take these two plants that are both Amazonian, both somewhat controversial. Uh, tobacco is used by a billion or more people every day. Ayahuasca hmm. is probably used by a, a thousand times less people, but still uh, it gets a lot of it gets a lot of press. And as in the cosmic serpent, where I was going back and forth all the time between indigenous knowledge and science and looking at how they corresponded and said similar things, uh, uh, but from a different angle. Here is, well, we're just talking about two plants, two psychoactive plants. And so here's the indigenous angle. Here's the scientific angle. And this time, the reader gets to go back and forth and to figure out where he or she um, wants to stand. And so... It, it's not even metaphysics. It really is just thinking about two plants and thinking about what what is the angle from which you want to think about the plant, or uh, can, are you flexible enough to hold both of those angles in your mind at the same time and then put it together or make them kind of overlap in your mind? Does that give you a, a sort of a deeper understanding or a thicker understanding um, uh, of it? Um, well, that's up to the reader to see. And so um, it's not all that different uh, from the cosmic serpent in that it, it really does to pr propose not only two systems of knowledge, but looking at how one, one can go back and forth between the two. Mm -hmm. uh, so it looks like a, an exercise book as well. Yeah. And I think, um, like ayahuasca, you could read about it all you want, but until you've experienced tobacco in that context where it's used as a medicine and it's um, usually a different strain of tobacco from what's available in the north and commercial tobacco products, until you've had that experience, you really have no idea what tobacco is. Um, and you give people a little bit of a sense of that. And I wonder if you could just share that story about your first encounter with tobacco as a medicine. Yeah. Um, well, I start by saying that tobacco never was my plant. Um, in other words, uh, you know, I tried smoking uh, uh, cigarettes when I was an adolescent a couple of times, but it was just, I didn't like the taste. Uh, the effect didn't call me. Um, and um, uh, actually one time just for fun, I, I inhaled on a cigar a few times and it just made me uh, nauseous, you know? So I thought that I didn't like tobacco at all. And then as a young anthropologist, I, in the middle of the 1980s, I ended up doing my field work with Ashaninka people right in the middle of the Peruvian Amazon their word for doctor or shaman is sherry piari sherry means tobacco piari is doctor the tobacco doctor you have a problem you go and see the tobacco doctor In, invariably a man um he will take his tobacco paste and um and then do a diagnosis think about things um 
And tobacco is also applied as a remedy, but that's a, that's another uh, uh, question. So um, one day I was with uh, the the forty five year old uh, Shaninka, who was my main uh, uh, consultant, and he went up to visit his shaman teacher, tabakero teacher, and this was an old Ashaninka. He was so old he didn't even know his own age because he was born before the Ashaninka learned about numbers. Uh, so he was probably about at least 80 years old in 1985. And um, um, he started playing around with me uh, a little bit. Um, uh, so he was, he was just sitting there eating his tobacco paste. And I was a 25-year-old uh, white boy. And... Um, he, he kept asking me in Ashaninka whether I was his father-in-law. And, you know, I thought this guy, and he asked me like 20 times in a row. So it, it was kind of uh, hypnotic and strange, but I thought I'm not going to let this guy get, get to me. So I'm just going to say yes every time. And he kept on laughing. My uh, Ashaninka friend told me later that night that at, what that question meant was, can I sleep with your daughters? So... <laughs> joke was on me. <laughs> yeah, you thought you thought you were humoring him. <laughs> <laughs> but so anyway, after about 20 times, uh, I decided to sort of kind of interrupt his game. And, and I asked him, you know, could I try some of your tobacco paste? He said, sure, and handed me this gourd with a stick in it. And um, so just to, to show that, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't afraid of anything, I took a, a dollop of this stuff and put it in between my, my lips and then I sat to the side and allowed the, the gentleman to move on with their business. And after about 10 minutes, I started feeling uh, like that my whiskers were growing, my teeth were, were getting long and sharp, my mouth tasted of blood. Um, I started eyeing the chickens that were clucking around and, uh, and decided not to attack them. I, I started feeling like a, a feline, like a, a, I was, as if I was turning into a big jungle cat. Uh, it felt warm, um, aggressive, and wise, all sort of bundled into one. Um, I mean, you know, I was even thinking, Oh, well, you know, the tobacco paste is strong when the anthropologist starts attacking the chickens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and at the same time, so you, uh, I was kind of thinking fast, laughing at myself at the same time. It was all going on. And it was a very powerful body-based experience of, of having the impression of being uh, a big, powerful cat. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, at the time, I didn't even think things like that were possible. Um, but it, it was a very strong impression. And, and it actually was something that I was able, I, I'm still able to convoke it uh, 36 years later, if I want to. Um, yeah. I, I know what it might feel like to be a, a powerful feline. And I can, and and because that that memory is is in the body more than in the brain, um, I can kind of convoke it and use it uh, when I need to, which is not that often these days. 
But, um, you know, early on in, in my career, when I get up to talk in front of big audiences and stuff, you know, to, to avoid being nervous and to, and so forth, I just sort of channel a bit of that energy and, yeah. uh, and it, it was actually pretty useful, but it was also something that, um, I never really talked about because it was a little bit too far out there. Yeah. Um, so it was more something that I used than talked about, but I yeah. put it in the, the first chapter of, uh, I mean, in the introduction of this new book, just because, well, the book was about tobacco and I think it's important also to situate oneself. And that, that was really the only, the one and only major tobacco experience that I had. I was not that interested in repeating it. So even, even though um, it was a powerful experience and it's turned out to be very useful over the years, it was never something where I thought, oh, I've got to get some more of that um, uh, shamanic tobacco paste and turn into a Jaguar more often. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got that experience. You can draw on that and invoke the big cat energy when you need it, right? Right. Why do, Why repeat? Yeah. Um, you sp have you not spent time at Mayantiaku with Juan Flores? I have. I've spent a whole bunch of time at Mayantiaku with Juan Flores. Okay. I thought so. Yeah. I, I went and visited him. Um, and before we could drink any ayahuasca, he had us do a tobacco ceremony or a tobacco purge. Mm -hmm. So did you not encounter it with him in that context? Um, yeah, I once did a tobacco purge with Juan Flores in Mayantuyaku, and that, that was the, um, I think, yeah, the only time that I did it. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. uh, how would that experience compare to taking the paste? Is there any similarity? You know, no, I think it's a, it's a pretty different uh, experience. And um, actually, the uh, tobacco purge is something that needs looking into mm. in that it's, it's a fairly um, modern innovation, I think. I th and I think this is what would need to be researched. There's not much evidence of traditional, whatever that word means, but let's just say historical tobacco purge. It's more something that has come with this whole new world of people going to the Peruvian Amazon to try uh, ayahuasca. So it's like a more of a, a modern invention, which doesn't mean that it's a bad thing in any way. Um, but it's not something that uh, the Ashaninka that I was living with were practicing, like this, this old guy who was born in the early 20th century. I mean, he was, was never doing tobacco purges and he was always eating his tobacco paste and that was it. But there's all kinds of ways of using tobacco, but um, a, to a tobacco purge is, is more about cleaning the body than it is um, about a shaman using a paste for a, a precise effect. So uh, there are shamans uh, who drink tobacco but as Rafael Chanchari says in the book, that has more to do with sorcery. Uh, there are shamans who smoke tobacco, and that often has to do with healing and you blowing smoke on people and so on. And then there are the practitioners of tobacco paste, and Ashaninka are well known for being tobacco paste practitioners. Not all indigenous people in the Peruvian Amazon uh, produce tobacco paste. 
but uh, clearly it's something that has hundreds of years of, of use and it's an, an old um, shamanic tool in the Western Amazon. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because having that tobacco purge with uh, Juan Flores um, was a certain kind of experience and it did feel like it was uh, kind of a physical preparation for drinking the ayahuasca, like just clearing things out. Um, but then I've had another experience with an ayahuasquero who apprenticed with a guy in uh, Iquitos, a mestizo guy. And it was very different. Um, we drank some tobacco water, but it had other ingredients in it. it tasted like it had tons of, uh, of jungle garlic in it. Um, and uh, the, the tobacco would pour it up your nose when you thought you had drank enough. It was uh -huh. like just trying to get as much into you as possible and then going through a purge. But in that case, it was very uh, psychotropic. There was a lot of kind of um, emotional release accompanying the physical purge. So it was a very different experience. And there was uh, Ikaro sung over us. And Did you like it? Did I like it? <laughs> no, it was uh, one of the most uncomfortable right. experiences of my life. But, uh, but there was a healing, uh, a really deep healing that uh, occurred because of that. Um, but it, uh, yeah, it was quite a different thing than that, that um, tobacco purge that I did at my Antioku. So that's one of the things that struck me about going down there is this whole world of tobacco opening up to me. I mean, there's so many ways that people prepare it down there and, um, and get it in the human body. <laughs> um, and you cover a lot of those in the book, which I was really happy to see. Um, something like uh, hape i think about because it's become quite popular in neo-shamanic circles mm -hmm. but I, I haven't been able to find any reliable information on it could you talk a little bit about what you found about hape which is um for people who don't know it's a powdered form of tobacco that is blown up the nose well um some people uh swear by it um i actually had some uh um uh, Kashinawa people from uh, Brazil, Huniquin people, um, blow some up my my nose. Um, I, I was being polite at that point, um, and it really knocked me out for three four hours, and and then my sinuses were suffering for the next three weeks. I mean, it was a very intense uh, experience, but um, I mean, it was a big dose blown up the nostrils and. Um, Yikes! But I mean, some folks like that. There, there are people who who, who take their hape, and uh, so it's it's this uh, Amazonian snuff, really. Um, and it's it hasn't been studied that much. Uh, the there's only one uh, kind of um, molecular study of what's in rape, and. Rapé is often mixed with other plants uh, just for taste. Um, there are industrial rapés that are uh, uh, sold in, in Brazil, for example. Um, actually, the, the, the single study that exists compared uh, 10 industrial Brazilian rapés to two uh, rapés that were made by, handmade by indigenous uh, Amazonian people. And... Um, 
the the industrial kind had like 15 times more nitrosamines. Nitrosamines are, are these um, um, uh, carcinogenic molecules that um, 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 appear in fermented tobacco. Um, the bacteria uh, eat the nitrogen in the tobacco and depending on how it's been dried, if it's been fermented, then you get uh, a lot of this nitrosamine, which is a byproduct of their activity in there. So it's not initially in the tobacco. It really does depend on, on how it's treated. And so these industrial rapes are fermented to give a kind of a smoky taste, but they're filled with these carcinogenic substances. Whereas the um, uh, indigenous rapes uh, did not have these, they had actually very surprisingly low levels of nitrosamines. Um, and they had, they, because their fire dried, they're not sort of slow dried and fermented. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did have some hydrocarbons in there from the, the fire drying. So that's another thing that, that needs saying about any form of tobacco. There is no safe tobacco. It's like you know, unsafe at any speed kind of, but you can, you can limit the, its dangers. Um, I mean, you want to avoid uh, any kind of tobacco that is rich in, in nitrosamines and, and, the longer your tobacco product sits on a shelf at temperature uh, on a on a shelf in a store at uh, at ambient temperature, the 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 more uh, of of this carcinogenic substance it's going to have. It's like I think the the amount doubles uh, over six months. So um, it depends on how the tobacco has been dried. It depends on how you store it. Um, uh, and it it really is something that if you have tobacco that is rich in in this, it, it gives cancer to your nose, to your mouth, to your esophagus. It's, and it's not the nicotine, it's not the plant itself. It is this, uh, well, uh, I'm not saying that, but that the, there are no, like when you smoke, there are other byproducts and they too can give you cancer. But it's pretty obvious that it is not nicotine that is re- responsible for cancer. And the nitrosamines are uh, at the top of the list of the substances that are associated with tobacco products that, that do give cancer. Anyway, I'm getting slightly away from the, the rapes, but it's just to say that uh, there's not much known scientifically about them. They can contain all kinds of different um, other plants, ginger and clove and just for taste. And, so, and then depending on how they've been dried and treated, what you are then putting up your nose can contain many different substances, um, and it's powerful. It's it's rich in in nicotine. Um, I think people have the idea that if they if they're not smoking, it must be better. Um, yeah. I think it kind of it it depends if you're if you're smoking a strong shamanic uh, nicotiana rustica and you're doing it occasionally. Uh, it may well be less harmful to your overall health than if you're sniffing industrial, industrially produced rapé uh, that is rich in nitrosamines. So um, it's, it's, it's not necessarily true that uh, sniffing rapé is better for you, as it were. It still is tobacco. It still is powerful. 
And uh, you got to be careful uh, as to what it actually contains. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I really appreciate that information because I've been using Hoppe for, for years and I was under the impression that it was a safer alternative uh, to regular smoking. Um, and I had no idea about these byproducts from um, different drying methods. So it's really important information. <clears throat> Most of an easy know. thing to do is uh, uh, if you know your rapé uh, producer, you can ask them what are the other plants that are in there, and and how is it dried? Is it uh, is it slow dried and fermented, or is it fire dried? Mm-hmm. And even if it is fire dried, there is uh, I don't know, yeah, preoccupying levels of hydrocarbons in there. It's not you know it never is um, um, entirely uh, pure or clear. Uh, it's 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 interesting when you look. I mean, the the Swedes, oddly enough, the Swedish people have come up with what seems like the <laughs> least harmful way of consuming tobacco. So um, they pay a lot of attention to not putting too much nitrogen in the soil. Um, and so that th- these are not nitrogen rich plants that really limits the level of the nitrosamines. The less nitrogen there is, the less the bacteria can turn it into nitrosamines. And then they pasteurize it once they've, they've harvested it they pasteurize it and they get rid as much as possible of any bacteria. And um, then they air dry it fairly quickly and turn it into a powder, which is called snus. And at this point, snus has extremely low levels of nitrosamine. Um, and then uh, you, what you do is it's like a, a tobacco that you, you kind of, that you suck on. So it's, it's in the mouth. Um, However, um, as I was saying, unsafe at any speed. Uh, so it's true, They're, they don't have mouth cancer, they don't have esophagus cancer, they certainly don't have lung cancer, they don't have many of the problems, uh, uh, of the serious uh, health problems associated with tobacco, but they do have, uh, so regular Swedish snus users do have an increased level of diabetes because that's what nicotine does do, is um, it, it makes the sugar in the blood stay in the blood longer because it makes it more difficult for the sugar to go into the cells. It actually messes inside cells with their capacity to absorb sugar from the blood. So the blood accumulates, uh, so the sugar ac- accumulates in the blood. So, um, and also nicotine, even though it doesn't uh, cause cancer, besides causing diabetes or, or, or increasing the risk of diabetes, it is also bad for uh, fetus and, and newly born babies. So um, even though uh, Swedish snus seems more or less riskless, it's not for pregnant mothers either. So even this pasteurized, well thought out, Swedish, almost riskless tobacco product um, seems pretty good it's still not entirely safe and good for the human health yeah Um, well this is very much looking at tobacco from that uh, scientific reductionist point of view uh and so a purist might say well okay you've refined this tobacco product but in doing so you've lost actually the spirit of tobacco which makes it a teacher and a healer 
And this is kind of like getting to um, that point in your book about these plants having like two sides to them or two spirits. Well, you know, that would actually be a very interesting research question. It would be to take because Swedish snus, one of the reasons why, for example, it's banned in the European Union outside of uh, Sweden and Norway is that it is uh, rich in easily available nicotine. In other words, when you put this uh, pouch of snus in your mouth, you you really do get a full delivery of nicotine. It's not one of these, uh, like a cigarette, which is a relatively light delivery of nicotine because they, they want you to light up another one 20 minutes later. They don't want you to get the full shamanic hit, but uh, snus is strong. so. Uh, it's strong and it's relatively clean. It would be interesting to take some some good yeah. sweet snus, keep it nice and refrigerated because you you want to keep those nitrosamines way way down close to zero, and and then give it to uh, indigenous rapé experts. Actually, the only scientific study of the indigenous rapé that I was talking about before found nitrosamine levels that were comparable to Swedish snus. So very these, low. The, extremely low, like close to zero. Uh, so by by fire drying pure tobacco in the rainforest with uh, homemade methods, they're getting close to uh, advanced Swedish industrial procedure in terms of limiting the nitrosamines and making st- a strong tobacco product. And so uh, it, it would be great to get an Amazonian jury and to 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 get them to to give us a uh, a one out of 10 uh, estimate on the shamanic worth of a Swedish snus. I, I love that. I might actually <laughs> might lead the charge on that. Um, I know a Sherry Piari that I could uh, bring some to actually. Um, well, that's good to hear actually that the kind of traditionally um, produced hape or rape in Spanish is um, is at those levels of the very refined Swedish product because well, well, that's where it, I, that's where it, I get my supply it, actually. These the two ones that were that were tested in the only existing right. study. So I mean that's another thing is that really uh, here we are talking, but uh, this has been understudied for the moment, and it certainly deserves more attention. Sure. Before before we can have any kind of certitude. But the kind of main bullet points, if you are using hape, um, I would say look for the the fire dried version. Um, be uh, careful about what additives are in it. Yeah, I think that the less uh, sort of uh, taste enhancing things that they put in there, the, the better in terms of putting it up your nose. And then um, once you've got your hape, keep it refrigerated. That makes sense too. Absolutely. Yeah. I think any tobacco product uh, by this logic, uh, if it's possible, should be uh, refrigerated. You know, mm. if, if you have a fridge and if you work with tobacco in any form, I'd keep it in the fridge precisely because the, there, you, there will always be some bacteria in there. And the more time you give them at room temperature, the more nitrosamines are going to produce and the less healthy your tobacco is going to become. Yeah. Well, you know, it's amazing. I mean, I've been working with tobacco for years and no one ever said, hey, keep your hape, keep your tobacco, keep your mapacho, keep it in the fridge. So well, this see, is... You see, doing your scientific homework sometimes pays off. Oh, for sure. Um, but there is that aspect in the book that you talk about where these plants are 
um, traditionally seen as having two sides to them so that ayahuasca isn't always good, tobacco isn't always a good uh, teacher and all of that, right? Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, my co-author, Rafael Chanchari, is the, the, um, the, the, the fellow who can really talk about that. In other words, um, his way of knowing these plants is to consider them as, uh, as persons, as, as powerful entities, as, as, as if they had a personality. Um, and, and that, yes, according to him, all of these teacher plants, all of these plants that are uh, powerful, we would call them psychoactive, um, um, and sources of these experiences that can lead to, to knowledge that they, they all have a, a, like two faces or a, a double edge that it's like any form of power and knowledge, really. It can be used one way or the other. Um, I think that's also what it comes down to. So that when you have a plant as powerful as tobacco or a plant mixture as powerful as ayahuasca, it can open you up to to many different perspectives. And, and some of these can be um, negative. Some of these can be about using that power to abuse people. Um, and so the, the interface between the, the human and the plant, uh, the plant can, can empower the person. And then the person, if they're not, uh, if they don't have a, a sort of a, an appropriate education before that, uh, it can seriously mislead them. And there's all kinds of examples, even in the indigenous world of people who, well, it's called sorcery, really. People who use the, the power and knowledge that these plants give them for their own benefit and, and to, the, to, the, uh, to the disadvantage of other people. They use that to, and you, you know, there's all kinds of examples of uh, ayahuasqueros who enchant their female clients to abuse them. In other words, the, the, this actually comes up in traditional shamanism quite a bit that uh, people who are learning um, are first uh, confronted by the temptation to abuse their newly acquired power long before they figure out how they can use it to uh, do good in the world. And if you're going to go down the healing path, you first have to sort of turn away from the dark path, which presents itself uh, uh, first and, and quite easily. So, and this is something that almost all shamanic practitioners are, are, are warned about. So whether it's that these plants themselves have two faces or whether it's because they impact on the human brain, mind, body, and that we ourselves have two faces, and that even though even the best of us are tempted um, to abuse the power and the knowledge we have, and to use it only for our own benefit and against other people, uh, you know, the what the the shamanic practitioners say is that if you see a healing shaman, you say, oh, he's he's on the white path. Uh, he's not on the black path. He's on the white path. He's formidable. He heals people all the time. Well, uh, it may well be true, but those are the people that you want to keep your eye on because those are the people who are going to be most tempted to abuse their power. The more power you have, the more you're going to be tempted to abuse it. So actually no one is ever entirely 
not only above suspicion, but nobody is ever entirely white in, in this game. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. so that I, I think that in in the human being, you, me, anybody, uh, we have this uh, two-sided possibility and that um, that the, the, you have to acknowledge it and deal with it. And, you know, uh, I try to, I try to keep on a straight and narrow and I try to avoid uh, uh, that stuff. But I, I'm sure there are people who tell you that uh, I'm a disagreeable idiot. I mean, you know, um, um, there it is. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, this, I think, needs saying about plants like tobacco and ayahuasca, if you are an ambitious, egomaniac, uh, self-centered uh, um, fellow, it's only probably going to make you worse. It's going to exacerbate that. In other words, th these power plants, if, if you have somebody who's power hungry and what they want is to accumulate personal power and they start working with these plants, they're probably not going to get any better they're probably going to get worse yeah this idea that if you gave donald trump ayahuasca that he would all of a sudden be <laughs> um yeah rehabilitated is is a fantasy but i think you know like i really appreciated that quote that you um that you included from luis eduardo luna where he said the the most dangerous aspect of ayahuasca isn't um the kind of hell trips you can go through or whatever but it's the ego inflation that can happen. Mm -hmm. and even to think, you know, that, you know, an egomaniac going into it isn't going to be rehabilitated is perhaps um, overstating it because the ego inflation, we're all susceptible to that. And, you know, that's one of the things about doing it in the context of a community is the community is going to help keep you in line and keep your feet on the ground, right? And, and it just kind of goes with what you're saying about being wary of even those uh, healers who have a lot of the light, you know, and I think about this like psychological rule that the the bigger the ego or the bigger the personality, the bigger the mana or power, the, the bigger the shadow that accompanies it. Um, and we all have the potential, we all carry a shadow. And I think there's a lot of like, kind of indigenous wisdom in the personification of these plants as people because we all understand that we have a light side and a dark side. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at the plants as people, well, they would also have a light side and a dark side. Mm -hmm. And so well, go forward with respect and, uh, but also a sense of wariness and keep your eyes open. Yeah, absolutely. I really uh, agree with everything you, you just said. And actually when you're dealing with a plant as powerful as uh, tobacco, I mean, you can tell people until you're blue in the face, um, ooh, stay away from that plant because if you smoke it, it might give you cancer and it contains molecules that are bad for your health, you know, the usual public health discourse. Um, I'm not saying that that discourse shouldn't exist, but I think that uh, when you uh, get tobacco users to consider that the plant has a powerful personality and that something like the mother of tobacco that, I, uh, that Rafael Chanchari talks about, and that the personality behind tobacco is uh, powerful, uh, can mislead you, can lead you into difficult places. Um, 
that um, yeah, that she has a powerful personality. Actually, the the indigenous Amazonian people could consider that the energy behind tobacco is masculine, even though they talk about the mother of tobacco. The mother of tobacco is masculine in their view. Um, so he, she has a powerful, addictive personality, and you got to watch out. And and when you personify tobacco like this, it, it may well be easier for a lot of people. And I'm talking about the 1.2 billion cigarette smokers in the world, you know, uh, because the uh, the warnings on the packet don't do that much. Uh, the rational discourse that say that says tut tut, this is bad for you, doesn't really do that much. But if if you start thinking, ooh, this is a power plant, and in this plant there is this powerful entity and she's got a powerful, addictive personality, um, and that, um, you know, I got to watch out, otherwise she's going to kick my butt. Um, it makes it, a, I think, a, 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 something that's more immediately graspable. It, it's not about agreeing or disagreeing with a, a rational argument. It's about understanding who you're dealing with. Yeah. And yeah. Not, not what you're dealing with, but who. You know, yeah. so make it makes you more attentive. Yeah, and then we can be in relationship with it, and not just kind of intellectually stand above it as some lower form of uh, of nature or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was like thinking of it just as like nicotine and some other molecules. Yeah, it actually makes it abstract and distant, and you can think, oh well, I mean, you know, what isn't a bunch of molecules? That this that piece of wood over there is too. I mean, so what? But um, once it's personified, it's oh well, it's like a like an animal that you that you suddenly there's a jaguar in your office. You're thinking, whoa. Yeah. Uh, well, one way that this is uh, really brought home to me, I was watching um, a Canadian documentary years ago about uh, indigenous North American use of tobacco, and they were interviewing an elder, and she was talking about um, her. I think it was her nephew like was in the room and he he started coughing and she said oh that's the grandfather telling you you've been smoking too much uh-huh. and it was just kind of so natural to personify tobacco that way but just it really hit home for me just that personification and like the cough is grandfather telling you that you've just been using it irresponsibly or you've been using him irresponsibly you know well speaking of um personification of these power plants. Maybe we could take the opportunity now to dispel this uh, cultural meme that's been passed around the ayahuasca world, that uh, ayahuasca is a a female spirit. Mm. Um, You know, you always hear people talk about mother ayahuasca and mama ayahuasca. Mm. And I mean, in the in two of the traditions that I've encountered ayahuasca in, Santo Daimi and the Shipibo, they both consider that ayahuasca, the brew that we drink, is actually a marriage of the male and female principles. The male principle being the vine, the female principle being the leaf, chakruna usually. Um, so it's always kind of bothered me that this meme is perpetuated in the neo-shamanic circles. Uh-huh that ayahuasca is this uh, loving mother. She's stern, but she's loving. Right. Well, you know, uh, as an agnostic, 
um, I consider that people are free to believe what they want. So, you know, I agree. I don't, I, I don't want to start. Somebody wants to grandmother this or grandfather that, and you know, they can they can go for it. You know, um, but it's true, like. Ayahuasca is not the same thing as a grapefruit or a, you know, so somebody wanted to say, oh, grandfather grapefruit, you know, fair enough. You, you want to call your grapefruit that like that, you can go, you can do that. But um, ayahuasca um, is uh, an important plant for indigenous Amazonian people. It, it comes from there. It, it has a, a tradition. It has a, a, a a method of use that, that goes with it. Um, it's not just a sort of a, a product that you can take and then and then voila, you know, kind of make it your own. Um, I mean, you can you can just take ayahuasca out of the Amazon and bring it home and then do whatever you want with it. I mean, you can eat peanut butter with it if you want, but um, uh, still, mo most people have understood that ayahuasca is uh, something you need to ritualize it. It's too powerful to use without uh, defining a space and time when you use it. In other words, they have taken it as a, an Amazonian thing, and they use it in a way analogous to how people in the Amazon use it. And so much cannot be said about tobacco, for example. I mean, industrial cigarettes have nothing to do with a, a, a shamanic uh, tobacco session. Um, but um, ayahuasca, so then I think it is something like um, that um, it, it, it comes with a kind of uh, a, a need uh, that it is appropriate to respect the tradition, the traditions from which it comes. And so that if you're suddenly calling it grandmother, um, well, you're imposing a, 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 a grid on it. Well, it's a, actually, it's a projection. Yeah, and that it isn't really there. And so it, it means, uh, to a certain extent, a lack of respect for the uh, indigenous traditions of ayahuasca. So how do they gender ayahuasca then? Um, well, it's actually fairly interesting that in some indigenous traditions, it is associated with a masculine persona and other traditions with a feminine persona, but then it can also be associated with all kinds of animals. The whole point is that uh, it's the, a master of transformation. In the places where it's a necessary combination of plants, it makes sense that it should be masculine and feminine. Um, that's the whole point is that there is no fixed persona. Uh, can be masculine, can be feminine, can show up as a bunch of gringo doctors, can show up as a hummingbird or as a black boa, um, and then it can change into something else again. And that's the whole point, masculine mm -hmm. and feminine, uh, or both, uh, or, uh, or then uh, an animal. Human uh, and not merely human, yeah. Yes. And so, and then that, that is the uh, essence of ayahuasca in, uh, so the mother of ayahuasca, the owner of ayahuasca has that, according to the indigenous people who have worked with it for uh, a long time. So, yeah. So, when the wait, when you say the mother of ayahuasca, immediately what I think from the psychological perspective is what we're talking about is what is the archetype at its essence? And well, so... 
the mother or the archetype of ayahuasca is shapeshifter, transformer. No, but you're, you're right to actually uh, insist right there. And it's something that I should have said. I think that where one of the, the problems, uh, where one of the problems comes from is that when you, uh, and Raphael Chanchari talks about this, um, in the indigenous languages, when you try to talk about the entity behind the plant, uh, in their language, the word will often be owner. Uh, but it can be mother, and it, or it can be father. And in fact, those three words are interchangeable, um, and uh, as is the word essence also. And so the essence of tobacco is the owner of tobacco. Some may say the mother of tobacco or the father of tobacco. It's all the same thing. And, but in Spanish, it comes out as uh, e either they say owner, dueño, or they say madre, which is mother. And so then the, the uh, Westerners come and, and they hear, ah, the mother of ayahuasca. But um, in, in Ashaninka, people would, would just as easily say the father of ayahuasca and actually more probably say the owner of ayahuasca. Um, you know, that's because people in the North and the West, we all have a mother complex. And so we want that mother, we want that grandmother. So that's the immediate projection, I think. Well, and so then uh, uh, in, in the book, at one point, Raphael immediately starts talking about the mother of tobacco and then says, yes, and um, uh, he is the, uh, the tobacco horn uh, man. The mother of tobacco is the tobacco horn worm man. Say, so, wait, so the mother is a man? And I knew asking that question that, yeah, I, I mean, I knew enough that that was actually a good question to ask because... That's right. They often talk about the mother of the plant, and it turns out the mother is masculine. But that's because they're using the Spanish word, and in their mind, it, the, the, the mother is not necessarily a, a feminine entity. Uh, it's just a, a way of saying the owner of the plant, the personality behind the plant, the entity inside the plant, the person inside the plant, its mother, its father, and so on and so forth. And actually, in Western languages, we, we don't really have the, the, the word for this. I mean, we, we have the word owner and we have the word mother. And, and so, but there is not really that word for the person inside the plant that is behind the plant and that somehow kind of looks after the species, but also kind of appears in individual plants as well. Um, so then we've translated the Spanish word that the indigenous people use when they try to talk to Spanish people, um, which is madre. And actually they have the same dissatisfaction with the word spirit because, and, and Rafael discusses this as well, it, 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 that in their language, the word that gets translated into Spanish as, as spirit uh, has more to do with person, uh, shadow of the person, image of the person so it's like yeah there's there's the person and then the image you have of the person even it's the same word if you're going to talk about the person's shadow you'll use that word uh, but at no point are you saying spirit uh, at no point are you implying something religious as the word spirit does or even all that immaterial because the word spirit mm. in our dictionaries is opposed to matter and so the indigenous Amazonians know that when they even when they speak Spanish and they try to talk about their concepts, 
that they have to use the word espiritu, but they can feel that their uh, mestizo interlocutors or, or even the anthropologists who, who are there, when when they hear the word espiritu, they're they're hearing something different. They're yeah, they're hearing, hearing invisible essence, this ephemeral thing, and religious. And yeah. in their view, they're not they're not at all uh, going on to a religious terrain when they talk about um, the spirit of the plant. Hmm. So um, there's a problem with yeah. uh, Western words or lack of Western concepts when talking about this stuff. And probably the whole grandmother ayahuasca focus is based on a, a kind of a, a misreading of the idea of the mother of ayahuasca. But um, well, that, I, I think psychologically it becomes the mother that all of us wanted to have but didn't get, you know. Well, and Mother Earth, right? Yeah, yeah. We've got like this um, yeah, kind of new monotheism arising around Gaia. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, is that if you look at um, if you look at all of the biosphere, it's like shot full of masculine and feminine. I mean, when when it is gendered, it's both. Yeah. The idea that like one is above the other, um, I, I mean, biologically makes zero sense. Um, so the 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 father, the son, and the and so forth was already one one sided trip. And Mother Nature and Grandmother Ayahuasca is another one-sided trip. Yeah, it's the one-sided uh, compensation for the other. And that's that's right. But actually, the the real thing is a, a inescapable blend of both. So and you know, lots, and so much ambiguity. And that's what I, I appreciate about the story that you're telling that you've got from your your friends down in South America is it's full of ambiguity, and it's. You can't you can't pin it down to a board like we so want to do with our Western minds. You know what's really interesting about that is that um, so they talk about Western dichotomies as if like uh, we were people obsessed with dichotomizing, but actually uh, people around the world dichotomize. And the idea there's some explanation that's been given for this is that you have on the one hand and on the other hand, so we have two hands. And so we tend to, on the one hand and on the other hand, and, and everybody does this. Um, but, for example, Ashaninka people, when they talk about the invisible entities inside all living beings, they call them maninkari, which is those who are hidden. Um, they're making a dichotomy between what you see and what you don't see. So they are saying, they're, they're saying these entities are usually invisible. With ayahuasca and tobacco, you can see them. So they're usually invisible, but sometimes you can see them. Um, so they're not beyond dichotomizing. But those same entities, maninkari, when they're translated into Spanish, they become spirits. And in the word spirit, there is an absolute opposition between material and immaterial. Well, the first thing is that the Ashaninka are not talking about a difference between material and immaterial. They're talking about a difference between visible and invisible. Mm -hmm. And the Amazonian way of making dichotomies is much more permeable. In other words, invisible, but sometimes visible. Um, and actually, these Maninkari, they're not that immaterial if we must talk about their materiality or lack of materiality, because the way that people think of them, they are what animate living organisms. And when they leave the living organism, 
it dies. So they're most of the time intrinsically part and parcel of living organisms. So not that immaterial, unlike what true spirits should be. All this is to say that what makes Western dichotomies uh, specific or particular is that they tend to be absolute. You have good and evil, material and immaterial, body and mind, and so forth. And so the body is everything that mind is not, and the mind is everything that the body is not, or nature and culture. And these are frankly Western concepts, not because they dichotomize, but because they are so absolute and so impermeable. And there's a lot more ambiguity. And all you got to do is think of the yin-yang image where you... You, you, you have the white kind of serpent shape and the black kind of serpent shape, but a little bit of black in the white and a little bit of white in the black. In other words, it's not clear cut. Uh, well, there, there's, there's always a bit of, uh, of, of bleeding. Well, that's what I was going to say. Um, even that image is very defined and clear cut and uh, delineated. I think the more accurate version of the yin-yang is if you took a drawing of that on paper and put some water on it so the colors bled together and there was a gray area, I would probably be closer to it. Um, you know, when you're talking about the conception of uh, the, the hidden one inside or the hidden one behind the, um, the plant or the person, I think it's more akin to uh, what we would think of as soul rather than spirit. And I wonder, is Alma, is that a word that they uh, use to talk about this? Yeah, well, Alma uh, also has its uh, problems. Um, and it, it also, just like spirit, it has its uh, religious connotations. I mean, it, it's, it, it is a, a Latin word, and it does come out of Judeo-Christian concepts. So um, I'm not sure that, that uh, soul or alma is what is going to sort of get us through this. Um, in terms of going into Amazonian concepts on their own terms and, yeah. uh, and understanding. Struggling with them. Because actually, it's more like, you know, when they, when they talk about um, uh, the, the spirit or the soul, that's how, that's how it would be said in Spanish or in English, of, let's say, a hummingbird. Um, what they're talking about in their language is the person in, in that hummingbird. The, the, there's somebody home, the, the, the somebody in there. Um, you know, so that we can interpret that as, oh, well, the soul, or, you know, I mean, th these different words. But really, the, the word I think that would be closest to the indigenous concept is, is person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, that, and so that the, the notion of um, uh, the Amazonian notion is that so you see a, a hummingbird, for example. Um, but actually, in, in the hummingbird's uh, uh, world, they are humans like us. Yeah. And well, so when they go home, they take off their animal suit, and there's a little human in there. And, and, and they're just like us. And, and they see us as uh, strange predators, just like we might see jaguars. Um, but so that in, in their world, they are humans um, from their point of view. And... 
it's not talking about soul. It's not talking about spirit. It's just saying there's people inside. Yeah. People inside. No, I hear you. I, I love that. That uh, it's the the hidden one inside, and the hidden one inside of me and the hummingbird. Uh, they're they look very similar, but it's like we're wearing different costumes out there in the world. Well, for example, the Ashaninka, uh, they, what they say is um, that with ayahuasca and tobacco, you can see that um, you can see these maninkari, these hidden entities, and they are Ashaninka. And because the hidden entities are Ashaninka, it means that the hummingbird is too. It means that the manioc plant is also. So it's like saying um, the hummingbird is uh, Canadian. Um, the uh, blade of grass is uh, not Canadian, but a Canadian. I am a Canadian. The blade of grass is a Canadian. That maple tree over there is a Canadian. You know, so that we're all uh, one family, uh, despite our, our different appearances. Um, you know, uh, Ashanika actually uh, means uh, us folks. Yeah. Like in 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 their language, that what it, that's what it means. And it's doesn't it doesn't that isn't that what every tribal name means? It's like it's us, like we're often, the humans, and everyone else is the other. <laughs> yeah, often, but so but their view uh, is that uh, even though the uh, the Shipibo over there are certainly not us folks and their Shipibos, but still within their world, the plants and the animals in their world, in in their view, are. Ashaninka as well. In other words, people like us. They, yeah. they are folks like us. Um, and so that's, I think, and, and now there are anthropologists who've thought about this and who say this is actually, that's what animism is. It's, it's recognizing the personhood of plants and animals. If, if you're in a place where people consider plants and animals as people, you're in, a, a, you're in downtown animism. <laughs> yeah, well, anima being the Latin word for soul. I think, you know, there's an argument to be made here. Um, just I'm hammering on this because I find it really interesting, actually, the, the, the ambiguity of it all and wrestling with the um, South American indigenous concepts. Uh, I, I love doing those wrestling matches. But one way that I'm finding it's resonating with me is what we're talking about is the if we're saying the hummingbird, it's that individual hummingbird, but behind that hummingbird or within that hummingbird is also the mother of hummingbird with a capital H that uh, defines how that hummingbird looks and how it acts and its song and its, uh, its attraction to sweet things. Um, but there's also that particular hummingbird who I might see every day come into my flower garden. And so, first of all, I just love that. And it resonates to me as being um, like the psychological idea of the soul, but then also the archetype, which is the the primary essential pattern. Um, so there's my individual expression of human, but there's also human archetype, let's say, that we share. Yeah, is that that's not a question, though. <laughs> no, just a reflection on that. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, but just trying I, to just trying it on for size. <laughs> I, I also add uh, that the individual hummingbird is probably also like a, a representative or a representation of 
the mother of hummingbirds. Exactly, yeah. Not just that the mother of hummingbirds is animating the individual hummingbird, but more also that the individual hummingbird is uh, an incarnation of, um, well, the mother of hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that, well, you could say the same thing finally with, with humans, as you just said, that we uh, each and every one of us is a, an, ex an example of humanity, an exemplar of humanity, a representative of humanity. Um, you know, it may not feel like it uh, when you get on the bus in the morning. Um, and you may think, who are, who are all these other human beings? Um, and you may feel very different from them. But um, still, I guess that you could take, a, there's 8 billion of us at this point. If you took any one and, and then, you know, put them in a spaceship and, and said, okay, you are now the representative of humanity. And uh, uh, we'd like to send you to go and talk with these um, extraterrestrials here. Um, that any one of us, a billion, could represent humanity. I mean, more or less well, more or less, uh, you know, to everybody's satisfaction. Um, but still, I think it is true that to a certain extent, every, every individual is a representative of that individual species. But, you know, this is fundamental to a lot of the problems that we're seeing these days is that we're so fixated on the visible and in that, looking at all the differences, we're always seeking out the differences. What distinguishes me from them, them from me? And if we were able to see the hidden one inside, like have a sense of the hidden one inside of me, then, then oh, well, Jeremy's got a hidden one inside of him too. And we're both human. You know, we're both uh, Canadian. Mm -hmm. We're both Ashaninkin. Mm -hmm. uh, then the external doesn't matter so much. Like you said, it becomes yeah. more permeable and, yeah. I think it's true that uh, how you're educated makes a difference. And, you know, if you're brought up as a, a, a young uh, Ashaninka to think that there are people inside the plants and animals around us, um, you will have a different way of um, approaching how you live your life, then if you're told, look, all those are just grass, you can go out and mow it, that's wood, you can go and chop it. Mm -hmm. There's a mountain, you can just go and dig into it and, and extract from it. And it's all just a bunch of matter. And the more you can accumulate for yourself, the better. It'll make you rich. You know, if, if that's the education you receive, it's true, you're, you're gonna look at the plants and animals around you uh, with a with a, a different light and I it's it's probably true that um, something like ayahuasca can can help certain people um, have empathy with uh, other species and understand that other species are similar to us or even members of our family like us that finally actually what does it mean to be a person when you say there's a person inside the plant, philosophers have debated this. One answer I like is you have a point of view. A person has a point of view. A snowflake doesn't have a point of view, as far as we know. Uh, so a snowflake is not a person. Um, but yeah, a blade of grass perceives, learns, remembers, communicates, grows um, from 
its reality has a point of view. There's someone home. It it makes decisions. It it grows one way and not the other. Um, and that being able to uh, imagine uh, what the point of view of another species might be is already a step in the right direction. And, and it's quite obvious that ayahuasca and other psychedelics also help people uh, think out of their own box and, and have empathy with other uh, uh, species and imagine what their point of view might be. And that's already a, a, an enormous step is because as soon as you start considering that the blade of grass is not just something that you've got to go out and mow, but that it actually has its own point of view, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then it, it allows you to have a relation with it. I mean, the, the whole point of objective materialist knowledge is that it's to de- deny personhood to the plants and animals, turn them into objects that, that can be used and th- with, with whom we don't have relations. It's so much easier to, to, to kill, exploit, extract if, if you just think it is a bunch of matter it's a lot more difficult if you have a relation with it, uh, but which is not to say that for, I mean, Amazonian people are hunters and so they, and they're also gardeners. So they kill plants and animals, but they understand that. Uh, and, and sometimes they get killed themselves. They, they understand that if you are going to eat members of your family who have, who are Ashaninka, just like you, then you, the, the least you can do is take their point of view into consideration treat them with respect, say thank you. I mean, everybody, the jaguars got to eat, the anacondas got to eat, the fish have got to eat, um, and we have to eat. So we have to kill other species. Uh, but, uh, and if you think like they do, then you have to eat members of your own family. That's the, the main uh, dilemma of the, the animist mm-hmm. is that, uh, so that then you have to negotiate that. And, and it means recognizing the relationship and uh, recognizing that uh, the other has a point of view and trying to take it into consideration. Um, yeah. So it, it establishes a whole new way of uh, relating, quite literally. Yeah. Yeah, you reminded me of an anecdote that I read about <clears throat> um, early uh, European anthropologists who is studying, I believe, the Inuit and seemed that their biggest struggle was that they constantly had to eat souls. Mm-hmm, that's it. It was the hardest thing for them to deal with. That's it. In other words, people. Yeah. Yeah. That was their biggest struggle. Um, I think, yeah, I think this is a really important point that we've come to. And I'm wondering like what you think it feels important to me, but that, um, we don't just take the plants as teachers or agents for healing, but maybe also that we take some of the cosmology of the people who are stewarding the plants. Uh, and that that maybe is really a lot of the medicine that we as Northerners or Westerners, gringos, that's what we actually need is to start seeing the hidden person inside all things. like we make this leap in depth psychology. It's called like the as if leap. So when you have a dream or you have a vision or a fantasy, you act as if it were real. Because our Western mind has been so cultured or conditioned 
to see things materialistically and you know we're the only ones with souls and that like you said allows us to do what we will um so we make this leap as if and i think you know the blade of grass if i act as if it has a soul and uh, is is a being worth considering or consulting with that actually probably makes me a better gardener so if i dialogue with the blade of grass and i go well from the grass's perspective what is the what do you need right now you look a little dried out perhaps you need a little water perhaps you don't need cutting perhaps you need to grow longer you know it, it opens up this whole dialogue that actually just kind of makes sense in, when you get down to it, if you're willing to make that imaginative leap. Yeah, you know? um, I, I agree. I think uh, as if is a very useful uh, device and uh, especially on, uh, on this count. But what I'd say is that um, as Westerners, just going and like, you know, taking a, like an Amazonian cosmology and saying, okay, those guys were right, we are wrong. So now I'm gonna apply the Amazonian cosmology in my life. Um, I'm not sure that's the way to go about it. In fact, my, my, my hunch is that that's not the way to go about it. Um, and, and that it, it's kind of close to playing Indian. Um, yeah. But, you know, okay. But but the the essence of the cosmology, the animistic yeah, essence I of it. Say that what we can do is um, inspire ourselves by by saying, okay, we know there are these approaches that others have had. Uh, we're not necessarily going to say that they're so right that we're just going to subscribe to them and and forget what we used to su subscribe to. But they're an example of an alternative way uh, of of looking. So. We've been down this path of looking at all of nature as a bunch of objects. Um, but still, we're coming from that Western culture. At this point, I think we've got to invent something new. It may inspire itself from the Amazonian vision. And I'm not sure exactly. So, so how do, when you come out of like 300 years of materialism, how do you rekindle relationships? You're not an Amazonian indigenous person. You are somebody who's coming out of 300 years. It's like coming out of a hangover. Um, and so so how do you at this point uh, rekindle a relationship? What are the words you're going to use? Um, well, I think this is what needs uh, inventing still. I mean, yeah. we're at that point where, um, and, and suggestions are welcome. I think just sort of like applying the Amazonian grid um, has something that is, um, it's almost like too ready-made. We, we, the, the work that needs doing is not going, taking a thing and then applying it. It's like figuring out how from our culture, what we got to do, uh, uh, yes, inspired by those other, because we know other models are possible. We're not gonna apply them word for word necessarily, but now we've, we, we've got to figure out how we can recreate the relation that we've been denying. And yeah. I mean, maybe maybe once we've done this for a while, we'll end up in a place that will be very similar to what Amazonian people have, have come upon uh, uh, themselves, or maybe it'll be quite different. And I say Amazonian because of course there's like Native Americans and in Canada and all around the world are indigenous people. And it by no means are all of their cosmology similar, but that said, I think, 
yes, they all consider that there is uh, that the other species are are like us and that we can have relations with them. And in fact, Western culture is the exception in this. It's the only culture that has denied that has treated all the other species like a bunch of objects and denied relationship. So yeah. you know that's what indigenous people have in common around the world is that they never did make the choice that Western people made to cut themselves off uh, from the kinship with the other species. So uh, we know that actually that kinship is real because molecular biology has proved it. Um, Well, so then we got to get back. We got to get back to figuring out how to relate to our family. Um, So, um, you know, and yeah, we can take classes in the Amazon and with Native Americans and with Aboriginal Australians. And, um, but I think we also got to do our own homework. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. I would never suggest that we um, take on someone else's cosmology and just try and superimpose it over our Judeo-Christian psyches. Um, that would be a big spiritual bypass and just uh, putting more stuff in the shadow bag that we're dragging around behind us. Well, but see, it, would, it, lead, it leads to things like grandmother ayahuasca, where yeah. Well, and it leads to people wearing, you know, Shipibo garb and whatever, right? Just kind of taking it all on, um, which I don't, you know, personally, yes, everyone's free to do whatever they want, what makes them happy, but I, I personally have some problems with it and I don't often see it working. But so what I would say, like toward a, a, um, a Western animism, let's say, I think like there's a real poverty of imagination in our culture and imagination is what allows me to personify and then be in relation with and dialogue with the not merely human. So one of the things that ayahuasca can actually help rekindle is our imaginations, which have been completely desiccated in our image rich culture. Um, so that's that's one way I think that it can help. But we don't need ayahuasca to rekindle our imaginations. You know, we need good stories and storytelling. We need, we can look at our dreams. Uh, we can um, not dismiss our fantasy life and our daydreaming. So right, so right. And you know, I think the this is one of the things with ayahuasca. And um, Benny Shannon has written about this in his book, The Antipodes of the Mind, Charting the Phenomenology of the Ayahuasca Experience, where, yes, uh, ayahuasca enhances uh, mental imagery, the capacity to have images, make images, in fact, to imagine. And um, what he also writes is that the, the imagination is, you know, it, it's got bad press. Oh, that's just your imagination. But actually, imagination is this... Uh, powerful, magical thing whereby you can uh, uh, have images of something that doesn't exist yet, for example. You can imagine the future. You can conjure up images in your mind of new solutions or whatever it might be. Um, And so, um, yes, uh, ayahuasca is something that clearly enhances people's capacity to see images with their eyes closed. I mean, this has been confirmed by by brain imagery. Um, So uh, uh, yes, uh, anything that enhances people's capacity to uh, 
come up with new ideas, new solutions, see images. Um, uh, this is something that is um, precious. Yeah, I think so needed too. And I think it's the only way to find the answers to the questions that we're currently struggling with in our global culture. Like well, not, behind, not the, behind, the, but perhaps uh, certainly. An no, I think it's. I think it's the only way. Be, behind any invention or innovation is imagination. Somebody had to have a vision. True, but then, um, then there's all that work that should not be neglected, in my opinion, between between the vision and the final product, as it were. Is um, you know bringing the vision into reality is um, the tough part, and so. Um, and actually, uh, rationalism can can play its place. And if you want to, if you want to make a vision real, you got to run it by the the rational part first. And and then if you can get both, if you can get the the rational part to tighten the bolts on the vision, then then you're in business. Um, oh, totally. Yeah. And so, like in in the cosmic serpent, that's uh, absolutely what the method was. It was to sort of imagine what the connections might be and then go and get the go and do the research and 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 get the rational data to back it up uh and that by going back and forth between imagination and and rational then you get a sort of a serious kind of fabric but um yeah i'm totally with you yeah you know i i got to run in fact yeah. because um my family's uh, waiting for me for uh for dinner yeah, I can see it uh, darkening behind you. So I think that's a beautiful place to end it. So the book is coming out September 1st, published through New World Library, and yeah. it's called Plant Teachers, Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and... The Pursuit of Knowledge. The Pursuit of Knowledge. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us. And um, I really, I love everything you offered, and I love this little... Um, book that you can take with you. What's the Latin word again? The Vade Mecum. Wonderful. Thank you, Brian, Jeremy. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you. And it was uh, obvious that you've been doing a lot of thinking on these subjects. Uh, at some time, at some points, I felt that you were uh, talking better than I was on the, uh, on the subject. So um, <laughs> uh, maybe one day I'll do a podcast and I'll, I'll invite you on. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love it. And uh yeah, we have much more we could talk about. There's a lot more misconceptions that I'd love to dispel with you sometime. So maybe down the road, we can meet again. With pleasure. Take care. Thanks a lot, Brian. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.